So, Nick, do you have any great teachers in your life? Well, I work like for a school district. People who so ended I know up being mentors. Yeah. Teachers for you, though. Like teachers for me when I was when I was younger. Uh, yeah. And it, it, I mean, I've had good teachers and bad teachers like all of us. And it is incredible how much difference that makes versus a bad teacher who like brings you down. So my sixth grade teacher was the first male teacher I ever had. Um, well, so we've talked about this a little bit in the past. So when I was in up till fifth grade, I was in a two room schoolhouse in South Dakota with 50, 25 other kids, K through five. So I had two female teachers and they were, I don't remember a lot about them, but they were fine. But when I got to sixth grade, I had my first male teacher, Mr. Urban. And he like made a huge difference, like drew me out of my shell. Cause I was like this little scared Midwest kid who went to a tiny school and now I'm in a big suburb and he came to one of my baseball games. Like that's not something a teacher needs to go do. And he did it. And it made yeah. a big difference, you know? Um, and then my other great teacher was in, was in college. I had a professor named Rebecca force down at the university of Oregon who kind of like was like tough love, but also the, the love part was big. So like she forced me to do things I was scared to do and like was really supportive and helped me get an internship and stuff like that. Um, so yeah, I mean, I could also talk about the bad teachers, but that's not fun. <laughs> yeah, I um, I recently found all my old report cards that my mom has kept over the years from elementary school, middle school, high school. I was a little bit horrified, but also it was fascinating. And I was able to track almost every year from first grade through high school and I remember my first grade teacher, her name was Susie Q, actually. Huh. And she was such a great teacher that you still ask people who are my age, 49, who was your favorite teacher if you grew up in the same, you know, through the same school district. And they'll say, Susie Q. And here how, here's how she's doing now. So people remember her. She was great. And I don't really remember why I thought she was great because I was, let's see, I was five when I started first grade because I was a young student and then six, you know first month of school. So my memories of first grade aren't great. But I remember she used to call home to check in on me because I had come from a private Greek Orthodox school and it, kindergarten was a little rough. And I think she was worried about my adjustment, which made her a great teacher. Mm -hmm. um, and I just remember her being like so caring and you're six and you're afraid and you don't have any friends. And she just made me feel so at ease. And then I had a bunch of bad teachers and I, it's very clear in the report cards that they were crap teachers because the things they used to say about my socializing and my conduct were just like, you would never do that now. Um, and then I had, you know, some high school teachers who, you know, the best teachers to me, like Mr. Mellenfant was my junior year English teacher and I did not apply myself. I was just just dicking around all the time as a student. Like I had so much potential, but I just wasn't a great high school student. Mm -hmm. And he never cast me aside and treated me any lesser. He was just great. Like he would engage with me just like he did honor students and just, you know, he didn't do the whole, you have so much potential if you apply with, he just talked to me like I was a normal kid. And I thought that was so important and mm -hmm. I'm still in touch with him. He was a great teacher. That's awesome. And then I had a, I had a mentor in college who was wonderful and, and she sounds a little bit like your journalism professor, tough love all the way. You get, you get one grammar mistake in your in your paper, and you're you're getting an F. Like she was really hard. Mm -hmm. I had to write a sixty page paper on the Cuban Missile Crisis, my senior year. Wow. Like it was insane, but she was incredible. And her memorial service is on Tuesday. She just oh, died this summer, but 
yeah, she is people from, I think, every newsroom in America and newspaper are going to be there. She was incredible. But I did have some really good teachers. And I love films and books about good teachers because I don't think we celebrate them enough. Can you like imagine the web, like the the tree, right, from that teacher with all these great professionals and then the people that they are mentoring and just this that's like a life well spent. You're influencing so many people to be better. Yeah, she was incredible. Her name was Marsha Della Justina. So if you work in news, you know Marsha and they're called Marsha's kids and she's been teaching, you know, since the early 80s. So, I mean, networks all the way down to the smallest markets in the country until just recently mm-hmm. when she retired. But um, everyone knows Marsha. And she'd keep in touch with you for years. She never had her own kids, but you know, she shows up at your weddings and she shows up when you have a kid. And she was, she was really incredible. Interesting. Well, I'm sorry to hear for your loss and it's good. We're talking about this now because we do have a film coming up. That's every teacher's favorite movie. Probably it. We'll talk more about it, I suppose. Um, Yeah. Should we talk about the bad teachers? We shouldn't, right? We shouldn't name them and, and describe how they fucked us up. No. Yeah, I just think I just think bad teachers got away with a lot more when we were kids. Don't you think in the 80s? Maybe. I mean, I I don't know. I you know, in my present job I deal with a lot of teachers, but I'm always dealing with the best of the best because I'm in like yeah. public relations, so the teachers that we focus on are great. I I mean, I've never met a teacher in my job that I thought, you know, that guy or that lady isn't amazing cuz I could never do what they do, right? So I don't know. Yeah. I, I, I don't know what they can and can't get away with. I just know that the, most of the ones, and I think it's important to say, like, the vast majority are amazing, dedicated people. And every now and again, like any other job, somebody sneaks in who just really isn't cut out for it. Exactly. And one of the best gigs of my career was that little franchise I did, Leaders in Learning. Mm-hmm. And you hooked me up with a bunch of great teachers, not just teachers, but educators in general, people who work in the school district. It doesn't have to be a teacher. It can be a custodian and whatever a coach and i loved that series and then COVID happened and it stopped um but it was so great because every time i would meet a great teacher the other teachers that who who i would interview for the story would start telling me a little bit about their background and i'm like well i could do one of these on you right and so there's unsung heroes in all the schools and i'm like gosh this is like shooting fish in a barrel there's so many great teachers and they're not recognized often enough but we all know that right yeah Give them a raise. So we're not going to name names and and drop bodies with the bad teachers. No, no. You know who you are. Yeah, let's pump the positive, as Mike Benkoski would say. Plus, all of my my bad teachers are dead right now. I'm old. Good. (laughs) Welcome to Film Swap, the podcast where we challenge each other to watch the movies that we've let slip through the cracks or purposely shoved into the cracks for whatever reasons. I'm Angelica Fuller. And I'm Nick Vole, and this week we are talking about Dead Poet Society. Welton Academy for Boys, a breeding ground for the future leaders of America, an institution dedicated to achievement, virtue, and conformity, a school whose rigid standards are upheld by every single teacher, except one. Come on, Mr. Overstreet, you twerp. Mr. Anderson, are you a man or an amoeba? Language was developed for one endeavor, and that is to communicate. No! 
to woo women. Mr. Keating. What was the Dead Poets Society? The Dead Poets were dedicated to sucking the marrow out of life. Spirits soared, women swooned, and gods were created. Not a bad way to spend an evening, eh? I hereby reconvene the Dead Poets Society. To strive, to seek, to find. Gotta do more, gotta be more! <laughs> Dare to walk a new path, dare to strike out and find new ground. I'm hearing rumors, John, about some unorthodox teaching methods in your classroom. Medicine, law, business, engineering, these are noble pursuits. Poetry, romance, love, these are what we stay alive for. That's beautiful. Sit down, Mr. Anderson. Touchstone Pictures presents Robin Williams as John Keating. He was the inspiration that made their lives extraordinary. Dead Poets Society. Okay, Dead Poets Society is a 1989 drama directed by Peter Weir, written by uh, Tom Schulman, the film stars Robin Williams. Uh, it's set in 1959 at Welton Academy, a fictional elite boarding school. It's about an English teacher who inspires his students through his teaching of poetry. It did pretty well. Uh, Academy Award nominations for Best Picture, Best Director, Best Actor for Robin Williams. Uh, Shulman won the Academy Award for Best Original Screenplay. Uh, here is a little bit of a summary um, of the plot stolen from Wikipedia and chopped down a bit because I know people sometimes say we don't get into the plot enough. Um, so Todd Anderson, played by Ethan Hawke, this was his first breakthrough role, begins his junior year of high school at Welton Academy. His roommate is senior Neil Perry. Through Neil, Todd meets lots of um, mostly rich prep school friends, uh, Knox Overstreet, Richard Cameron, Stephen Meeks, Gerald Pitts, and Charlie Dalton. Uh, on the first day of classes, the boys are surprised by the unorthodox teaching methods of new English teacher John Keating. Uh, he's a Welton alumnus himself. Uh, Keating encourages his students to make their lives extraordinary, um, something he summarizes with the Latin expression, carpe diem, seize the day. Uh, Keaton has students take turns standing on his desk to demonstrate ways to look at life differently, telling them to rip out the introduction of their poetry books, which explains a mathematical formula used to rate poetry. And he invites them to make up their own style of, of walking in a courtyard to encourage their individualism. Uh, Keating's methods attract the attention of strict headmaster uh, Gail Nolan, Mr. Nolan. So um, the kids find out that Keating was a member of an unsanctioned group called the Dead Poets Society while he was at Welton. Uh, so they start it. Neil specifically starts the club uh, and he and his friends start sneaking off campus to a cave where they read poetry. As the school year progresses, uh, Keating's lessons and their involvement with the club encourage them to live their lives on their own terms. So they start breaking out of their shells and not doing exactly what their parents want them to do. Knox, one of the friends, pursues uh, an attractive cheerleader who's dating a boy, a football player from a local high school whose family is friends with his. That causes a problem. Neil discovers he loves acting. He gets the main part, uh, Puck, in the local production of A Midsummer Night's Dream, despite the fact that his total dick of a father uh, wants him to attend Harvard, just study medicine, drop all the extracurricular activities that I don't approve of. Uh, Charlie publishes an article in the school newspaper um, suggesting that girls be admitted to Welton, and he, and he uses the club's name, the Dead Poets Society. That starts a big problem. 
The headmaster then paddles uh, Charlie to try and force him into revealing who else is in the Dead Poet Society. It does not work, though. Uh, Nolan also speaks with Keating, warning him uh, that he should discourage his students from questioning authority. Uh, Keating eventually talks to the boys and he's like, don't be stupid. Don't blow your opportunities. That's not what I was trying to teach you. Okay, Neil does the play, becomes devastated because his father just doesn't want him to do it. He does it anyway. Goes home with his dad after uh, opening night. Actually, I think there was only one night. Mm -hmm. They didn't make it clear in the film, right? It was just one production. Goes home to his parents. Um, and basically his dad says, we're withdrawing you from Welton. You're going to a military academy. And then you're going to go to Harvard. And then you're going to become a doctor. Uh, mom does nothing. Maybe she wants to interject but she does not um neil shoots himself with his father's gun his father finds him behind his desk it's an awful scene um nolan the headmaster then investigates neil's death at the request of his parents and they start trying to find blame and of course keaton is the one that they try to blame for encouraging the kids to do all these crazy things uh the, the friends cameron the the little twerp ginger um Blames Neil's death on Keating to escape punishment uh, for his participation in the Dead Poets Society. Uh, Charlie punches. Cameron is expelled. Each of the boys is called into the headmaster's office. They are basically forced to sign a letter um, saying Mr. Keating put them up to all of this. Um, final scene. Uh, Keaton is fired. He's gathering up his things. Um, Nolan is teaching his class old school, making them read that horrible poetry book introduction that Keating had them rip out of the books. Um, Keating walks in to grab some stuff. Um, Todd stands on the desk and says, they forced us to sign the letter. Nolan freaks out. One by one, all the kids stand up on their desks. All the Dead Poet Society kids stand up on their desks, except for the, the ginger, Cameron. Uh, Keaton is proud, thanks the boys, and then leaves. Well, don't forget I know that was long. Oh, Captain, my Captain. They say that. That's the that's iconic, right. the iconic moment there. Right. So that's how they address him throughout the whole film, um, and it's a really touching last scene. What did you think of the film? Um, well, first let's back up here, and that was the longest description of a movie we have ever done on this podcast. So congratulations, you. <laughs> that was very complete. So any of you complainers out there. Stop complaining. Um, so I guess usually we talk here about, too, why I hadn't seen the movie yet. So this movie yeah. came out when I was 11, so it was obviously a little bit ahead of my time. And then, you know, it's just one of those movies that, you know, I didn't have cable as a kid, so it's not like it would have come up on HBO for me or anything. And so I just never revisited it. Also, it feels, and it is, a serious movie, and so it doesn't always seem like something I wanted to watch. Although I was kind of excited when you picked it because I'm like, well, this is something I should have watched. So I'm glad you picked it. Um, I liked it overall. I mean, I think that there's things about it, and I think we can all agree, that are not, don't quite work. Um, but I think that the sum of the total film here is is very good. Um, I think it was Roger Ebert in his review said something like, it has a very middle-brow high-mindedness, and I think is a very yes. accurate description. That's perfect. Um, yeah. And I think it's true. And, and it isn't to say it isn't successful what it's trying to do, though, because... I think if you see this movie when you're 16 years old, this is going to be a very profound movie for you. 
and there's there's space in our culture for that kind of movie. You know what I mean? Um, and I did enjoy it. And I think the main thing that gets it for me are the performances, which I think are universally excellent. And also just the universe, universality, universal, universality of this idea that crappy older people are going to try to keep you down. Don't let them. And I, and I think that there's power in that message. And I think that the performances move it past the corniness that might be that kind of is underneath it all. Does that make sense? Absolutely. I agree. Uh, I watched it when it came out, and I think I was a freshman because it was 1989. I was, or maybe a sophomore. I don't remember what time of year it came out, but freshman or sophomore year in high school. And I thought it was great, of course. This was the first time I've seen it since then. Oh, wow. Um, yeah. So I think it's a good coming of age movie for tweens and teens. So we watched it with my 11 year old. My 14 year old wasn't interested, of course. Um, and he liked it. He was a little bit bored because he's only 11. Um, but he is an intellectually curious kid who loves literature. So we thought maybe he would like it and sometimes doesn't feel cool about how much he likes literature mm -hmm. and how much he likes learning. Um, so we wanted him to see it. And I sense, um, it was nice for him to see a group of kids get so excited about the humanities in this way and not just sports or something mm -hmm. else. And I tried to, <laughs> tried to ask him a couple questions after I was like, so what'd you like about it? And he, in a typical 11 year old, he was like, I don't know, it was good. Well, did you, did you learn any lessons? He's like, live your dreams. Like he was being kind of sarcastic and he's like, no, I, I think it was good. It was go after what you want to go after. And you don't always have to listen to grownups. Yeah. So um, that that's important. And like we talked a little bit in the chat, it's always nice to see teachers celebrated in this way. I don't think we have enough films mm -hmm. like this. I mean, I love School of Rock and I love Mr. Holland's Opus and there's like Stand and Deliver. So there are good teacher movies, but I, I, I mean, I couldn't even. I disagree with you on Mr. I Holland's Opus. You don't like that movie. I think it's terrible, but continue. No, I listen, I I thought parts of Mr. Holland's opus were terrible. Like the girl scene, the the when he falls in love with the high school student, it got really creepy and weird. Yeah. And I I've, I've always thought how did they not edit this? Like how is this a part of this film? But I do think the way that he is celebrated in that film is great. And how he realizes like this wasn't what he set out to do, but you know, I mean, we all know the message of Mr. Holland's opus is anyway. So I do, I do like the basic message of this film, but it was pretty melodramatic. It was pretty one-sided, like the headmaster and all the, the, you know, the teachers for the most part, they were evil. The whole idea behind the school and all the parents, it was so black and white. Mm -hmm. And I think it could have been way more nuanced. And maybe if they had, um, Maybe if the film had come out in 2023, it would have been. Yeah. But for 1989, I don't know. Well, getting back to the black and white thing, like, yes, you're very right about that. It's fascinating to me that all the parents are portrayed as generally not great. And one in particular played by Kurtwood Smith, who, let's be real, is like history's greatest on-screen asshole in yeah. everything. <laughs> yes. Um, and and what, so what, everything I've ever read about him as a person is that he's a really nice guy and everybody loves him. Yeah. But he plays an asshole yeah. so well. But it's amazing to me that in this movie, like, you've got these parents who suck, and then every kid in this sh movie 
without exception, is just at heart a decent, caring human being. Yeah. There's no razzing of Todd Anderson, the new kid. They're instantly welcoming to him. They support each other's, um, you know, like flights of fancy and immaturity and creativity. They support all that for each other, which is cool. And like you would expect in a movie like this, you're going to get more some of these kids who are like, you know, super conservative, like hardline, you know, walk the line, shut up, don't be you know, into the arts, whatever yeah. it is, you know what I mean? And I thought that I was actually kind of nice because like the movie has enough tension already. You don't need this other thing. And in, in a way it's almost a fantasy that that didn't exist, but, yeah. but it worked for me. And even, even Dylan Cussman who played Richard Cameron, the redhead who turns on him, you can't yeah. hate that kid. He's put in an impossible situation and he makes the best choice he could. You know what I mean? It's easy to like for them to be mad. He's got to survive. Yeah. yeah. And like every, all these kids have to get through this. Right. So, um, I thought that was kind of an interesting thing. Just again, it's it's almost it's a fairy tale in a way, you know. It's yeah, not necessarily grounded in nuance and reality, but it works for the story it's trying to tell. Do you have any experience with like prep school kids? I mean, I went like my last two years of high school were at a private school. It wasn't like okay. a fancy private school, Portland Lutheran High School. It's now defunct, and most of the kids yeah. there were just normal kids. There were I encountered a couple kids there that I felt were like very much like I'm a private school kid and like fancy yeah. lads, you know? Um, but for the most part, no, I mean, I assume on the East coast, I feel like that's more of a thing. Oh, I was surrounded by these schools. I mean, Phillips Andover Academy was close. It's where I went to soccer camp in the summer. Phillips Exeter Academy. Um, there was a school that some of my best friends attended. They didn't go to the public high school with us. It was called Governor Dummer Academy, but now they've changed it to the Governor's Academy because they realized calling the school Governor Dummer Academy just didn't work <laughs> uh, for recruiting. But it, I mean, obviously 1958 was different and this was before a lot of these schools went co-ed, but the traditions and the families, I mean, it's 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 overwhelming if you are from a public school and not like, an upper class family. Mm -hmm. It's and so and I didn't I didn't see a lot of that. Maybe at Walton Academy they didn't accept scholarship students. Although there was a hint that one of them didn't have a lot of money. Which one was it? I forget. Um, it was Neil. It was actually Neil. He said, mm. "I don't we don't I don't have the kind of money that some of these other students have." When he was talking to Mr. Keating about his dad not allowing him to act, and he was sort of trying to um, explain his dad's position, like you know. I don't have the same kind of background. My father needs me to do this. I think with him, it wasn't he. He wasn't coming from old money. His parents were successful. Yes. He was coming from new money. Yeah, probably upper middle class, but not automatically get into Harvard kind of money. Mm -hmm. Exactly. Yeah. So, um, so you you this some of this stuff really registered with you. Yeah, and it like not having like not having a girl in the dorms. I. Uh, I dated a prep school kid when I was a senior and uh, after the prom, this is going to be like a nightmare where they come back and punish me like 30 years after high school. You know that dream. <laughs> uh, I snuck into the dorm and, and we hung out there all night. I wasn't being like bad girl or anything, but I had to sneak out in the morning and I was literally crawling out the window in my prom dress. I mean, that's how strict these schools were. It was <laughs> wow, and steeped in tradition and it, they were very intimidating. And the families who sent their kids, you know, away, they were like from Delaware, New York or wherever. I just never understood. I And I still don't. 
I'm not knocking these people, but I don't understand how you can send, especially elementary school and middle school kids away to be right. educated. Like when that I, part of the movie came up at the beginning, when they're sending their kids, kids off, crying, my wife and I looked at kids. each other. How could you ever I know. do that? I, I don't even understand boarding a boarding school for high schoolers. Like I have two kids. One of them's about to go to high school. The other one in a couple of years. I'm like, I'm, I would never send them away right now. These are the last years I get with them. And I, I don't even want to send my kids to um, summer camp for like six or seven weeks. I know some families do that mm -hmm. because I, I will miss them too much. And I want, I want to spend as much time with them as possible. So yeah. I've never understood that. But I think a lot of these families also went to boarding school and their parents went mm -hmm. to boarding school and this is just the way we do it and we don't know any other way. But I mean, I think even beyond the parents feeling sad and missing their kids, I mean, it's I think it's genuinely bad for the kids because you create yeah. this society in which like you don't have these strong emotional connections to your parents and you, you learn, I, I guess, to be compartmentalized in your little in your little way at this time in your life when you should be exploring things and having a safe place to go back to not being sort of on your own in a boarding school where if you screw up, you're never going to hear the end of it for the rest of your life because all the kids there are going to know about it and you live with them. You can't even go home and escape it. You know what I mean? I, I don't get it at all. And, and the kids I know who went to boarding school, the, my, my two best friends who went to boarding school, um, were day students, so they didn't stay there. But some of the kids I know, not just at this boarding school, but other uh, boarding schools, like I went to college with kids who'd gone to like prep school and, mm -hmm. and boarded, they were forced, it seems to me, they were forced to be adults so much earlier mm -hmm. and not in a good way. Like they took risks they shouldn't be taking. Um, they dealt, it, it seemed to me they dealt with more depression and just, I don't know. I don't know if there was a connection, but I was like, oh, typical. I remember thinking, oh, typical boarding school right. kind of kid. There is because they're they're being forced to do things that they are not emotionally yeah. equipped for. Totally. Yeah. Um, it did remind me we were talking here. So Catlin Gable was in my league. And Catlin Gable, if you don't know, is a Portland-based boarding school. Um, it's for rich people. And we did go there. Whenever we went to their campus, it was very clear that we were like, even as a private school, we were the poor kids and they were the rich kids. Yeah. And then, you yeah. know, along those lines, that school had a big sex abuse thing recently where a longtime yeah. staff member had been abusing kids for years. And I feel like also these places are rife with that because it you can't upset the apple cart when someone screws up. It's like the Catholic church or whatever. It's like you have, yeah. you just got to pretend it isn't happening because otherwise the whole thing blows up. So I don't know. There's just so many reasons. And then also this whole idea of separating the sexes is crazy to me. Like how my son is going to grow up to be a well-adjusted member of society who can interact with women, respect women, you know, relate to them in any real way when they haven't until they're 18 years old, like get out of here. Yeah. How, how do you do that? I will say a lot of the elite boarding schools that I'm familiar with on the East Coast have swung so far in the other direction and they are super progressive mm. and they really go out of their way to recruit and give scholarships to, um, you know, people of color. Um, and it's just a totally different laid back environment where kids have so much say in their education and nothing like what you you know what we saw in this in this film Welton Academy I mean sure there's some conservative schools particularly in the south this is supposed to be in Vermont although it seemed very it's it seemed 
like it was Massachusetts to me. In fact, those town scenes look like Concord, Massachusetts, where I lived mm. for a little bit. But I know there are schools um, in the South. I believe uh, Tom Shulman, who wrote the screenplay, went to a prep school in Tennessee, maybe, that he based this on, which makes more sense, which would be a little bit more conservative mm-hmm. in that way. Well, it's interesting you bring this up to me because, again, my wife and I were talking about this afterwards and like the and actually I was just talking to my buddy Chuck about this yesterday, too, like the parenting and teaching style presented in this film are very hardline, my way or the highway kind of things. And as parents now, we're trying to be more um, open and respectful to our kids, but it also can swing the wrong way. Right. You can't be too permissive. And it's interesting me to me as a parent to think about. How do you balance letting kids develop freely, but also keeping remembering that you're the parent and you and you know better most of the time and just letting them make mistakes, but not letting them make too big of a mistake, if that makes sense. And it is a very hard line to draw. And, and it's a lot lesson that, um, you know, the, he learned in the movie. Um, uh, Neil's dad learned in the movie the hard way, yeah. you know. Yeah, it's the hardest thing so far that I've experienced as a parent, exactly what you're describing, you know, cause I have a 14 and a half year old who's pushing those boundaries right now. And I mean, he's not a troublemaker. He's not getting into trouble, but we've had to have some really difficult conversations with him about like, what's acceptable, what's not, you know, and I'm like, you know, I want him to develop into his own person. I don't want to be too strict, but I don't know. It's really hard. I, 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 I feel clueless sometimes. And I guess like, I don't know. I think a lot of people, a lot of parents are going through the exact same thing. There's no freaking guidebook for being a parent. And you constantly hear about how boomers have screwed up and how Gen Z is so screwed up and millennials. And it's like, yeah, you can't do anything right. Maybe we're always just going to be screwed up for every generation forever. It's just going to be in different ways than our parents. Because we, you know, again, talking to my buddy Chuck last night, we had got drinks and hung out for like four hours. It was great. We were talking like you don't want to make the mistakes that your parents did, the things that they did wrong that you know they did wrong. You don't want to make those mistakes. So you're very conscious not to make those mistakes. Instead, you're screwing your kid up in a completely different way that you haven't anticipated. You know what I mean? And like everybody does that. Not us, not you. Everybody does that, right? There's just some blind spot you have. Or so as an older person, maybe you're not seeing the things that are happening in the school that you didn't have to deal with. You know, like social media for a lot of parents is a real problem, obviously, and things like that. So it's just an interesting thing to think about and trying to be the thing that I always try to be with myself and it's just self-aware. I don't want to lock myself off from things and I want to be able to be critical of myself and I'm not perfect and everybody, but you know what I'm saying? Like just having that openness is important. And, and I feel like, you know, exactly in this movie, you look at Neil's dad and just, he has one way of looking at things and that's it. And this, it costs everybody. Yeah. What else haven't we talked about? I'd love to talk about the performances too, but what were you going to say? Yeah. Yeah. I, um, a little bit more about the criticism I read and, and I thought Roger Ebert's review was really good um, because it was interesting. To, so he gave it two stars. Uh, he criticized Williams uh, for going to Robin Williams in his role. Um, in other words, too comedic. I think that's, that's what he was saying. Uh, and also the film for not mentioning beat poets, considering it was 1958. Um 
he also said Robin Williams didn't deserve the Oscar nod. It should have gone to Matt Dillon for Drugstore Cowboy or John mm -hmm. Cusack for Say Anything. I think Robin Williams was relatively restrained. I don't think he went to Robin Williams. I think he was pretty chill. In fact, it, which is a good thing. I, I don't think his acting blew me away, but I don't think he was too goofy, too silly. Mm -hmm. I don't think he deserved a best supporting actor nod. Yeah, I I agree with you. I, I think there were a couple parts he was to Robin, the part where he did the John Wayne impression, and that that's too far. I mean, it's it's too far, you know? Like, it's a hard line to ride because you do need him to be funny in a very specific way where the boys will be find him magnetic. Yeah. But that, that he was He needed too far. to not do it in his trademark way. Exactly. Even just using those voices takes you out of the film, away from Mr. Keating and says Robin Williams on Johnny Carson. Exactly. And and the beat poet thing is ridiculous to me because they, they, they still are at a prep school in the Northeast. Exactly. The classics are what they're going to do. And, and that makes sense. Um, mm -hmm. But I, I do think that that is a fair criticism. And I don't think he was necessarily deserving of the Oscar nod either. To me, that feels like an Oscar nomination that comes when, and we see it all the time, when somebody switches something up. Like, oh, we love Robin yeah. Williams, but look, this is pretty different. Give it to him. You know what I mean? We love him. This is our way to say we love you. I, I totally agree with Ebert on that as well. And I don't think it deserved a Best Picture nomination, although I do think it is a good movie. Like, I can't believe Do the Right Thing did not get nominated yeah. for Best Picture in 1989. Well, that's, I mean, that is, it's like, it's like Goodfellas not winning Best Picture. Like, years yeah. later, everyone's like, duh, it's so obvious. I don't think anyone in particular blew me away with their acting, but they were all good. I, I They think were all solid. I disagree. I think Robert Sean. I'm sorry, Dater, cut you off. I've done that a lot today. No. Um, Robert yeah. Sean Leonard, I think, was amazing in this movie. He was the best one. Because Neil was the best one. He had a hard. He had a hard role because he has to play the kid who's afraid of his dad and the kid who has this creative spirit. And his face is so expressive, and you can see just the, the disappointment behind his eyes while he is processing these things that his dad is saying. And you can see him. Uh, you know, being have you can see the joy in his eyes and the way he expresses himself with his classmates and when he's discovering who he really is. And I think he played it really well. And he, he played it in such a way that you believed that he is this kid who has these conflicts inside of him in, in a way that I felt like, you know, and the rest of the cast I think was great, but like, say, like Josh Charles is Knox Overstreet. It's a he's got stuff going on too, but he's not is expressive so it feels more like a one-note character if that makes sense yeah. no it totally does and i think that robert sean leonard acts with his eyes in an incredible way um he was awesome um do i think he deserved an oscar nod probably not but you're right he had the best performance of the film for sure and then of course i started like googling all the other actors sure. and what they've done um like gail hansen who plays charlie like what happened to his career yeah. Like some of them just didn't really do much after this. And then, of course, Ethan Hawke was huge. Yeah. And Josh Charles, who I have not been critical of. He's great. He's had a great career as well. I mean, he's been yeah. in a million things ever since. Um, I, I was in Kurtwood Smith. Of course, this was before he was too famous. I think he had I think Robocop came out the year before this. And he's like one of the great movie yeah. villains of all time. I think in yeah. that before he became really famous, I think, with that 70 show later yeah. on. 
But yeah, I mean, I think he was great too. He played it really well. Like again, acting with the eyes is such an important thing in film, and he does a good job of that. Um, you know, you see the intensity there, um, and then you see how he realizes after he finds his son's body, like oh, you can see it God. all on his face that he realizes it's his fault. What did he say? He said, my son, my boy, something like that. Mm -hmm. And it was like no more than five words and it was perfect. And the way he yelled it and just the sounds he was making and the cries from the mother, I was like, oh, that was a perfect scene. It was very realistic. Mm -hmm. He didn't know what to say. And he was, you know, like that guy is that guy's done for he's devastated and that's he the didn't real, have to say much the tragedy of it too because he he knows it's his fault effectively and he knows that my son my boy that kind of kindness he's offering his son's yeah. dead body is what he should have done before his son Too felt late. the need to kill yeah. himself and the mother's saying he's fine he's fine he's fine yeah like, whoa um so this is interesting. During filming, Williams uh, used to apparently crack a bunch of jokes on set, which I can see that getting annoying, right? Yeah. Uh, Ethan Hawke was annoyed by it. He found it irritating. Uh, for the scene where Todd is incited by John Keating to make a, a poem in front of the class, he doesn't want to get up and talk, and, and Mr. Keating you know, has him do it, and then he's, obviously he kind of opens up. Williams apparently made a joke saying that Ethan Hawke was intimidating, which Hawke later realized was serious and that the joke referred to his earnestness as an actor and his intensity as an actor. And then um, apparently Hawke's first agent signed with Hawke once Williams told him that Hawke would do really well. So he was really irritated by Robin Williams throughout the film. It was probably like, oh, that prick told me I was too serious. And then Robin Williams turned around and was like, you should sign him. He's going to be a great actor. And of course he went on to do some great work. Well, but I mean, that's, I like Ethan Hawke as an actor. He, he's like 16 in that too. So he's like the, the kid he's mm -hmm. playing, you know, he doesn't have the world yep. figured out yet. Robin exactly. Williams with all of his experience can see the bigger picture here. And, you know, and he can't, again, like maybe that's the self, the self uh, reflection here. He can't see that he's being obnoxious on set, but he can see the, the bigger picture. here. And that, I don't know. Yeah. I kind of like that idea though, that even off screen, there was this sort of dynamic between them where he's the older guy. Yeah. And, yeah, it's interesting. Uh, and Ethan Hawke was pretty restrained in his role, but he did a good job. I mean, he he played that scared, introverted kid. And uh, again, acting with his eyes, mm -hmm. pretty good. Well, you mentioned too a minute ago, you looked up all these guys as, you know, now, right? Where are they now? Yeah. And like, I was, I did that too. I always do that with every movie, but like, uh, I'm thinking like, I'm so glad that I did not appear in a movie when I was 16 or 17 you're looking like I looked in 16 or 17 years old because <laughs> you look at these guys now and they're all like handsome well-adjusted cool yeah but when some of them in this movie are so ungodly gawky and like yeah you know 16 Except years Robert old. Sean Leonard I was like he's hot Neil's hot he's a good-looking kid yeah but he was maybe he was older or I don't know or he just had older features yeah. but um, like I hope he was because now I feel creepy. <laughs> well, you know, you saw it when you were a kid, so that's different too. Yeah, that's true. That's yeah. True. Um, a couple other actors that I thought, you know, we talked about how like there's these, some of these guys are not done stuff, but there's also some people in lesser roles that actually did have other things they did, like Melora Walters and um, Welker White played the two girls that sneak into the cave. I don't know if you know oh, who that's they right. are. Oh, yeah, of course. I was like, Bill's like... I, he's like started quoting Goodfellas. She's like, I, I need my lucky hat. Yeah, right. 
I was like, where do I know her from? And I said, hat. Like, oh, I like, oh, I hate you. And I knew I hated her when she came in because I hate her in Goodfellas. You know what I mean? Yes. With the, you always with the fucking phone. Yeah. <laughs> and Melora Walters, you might remember from, she had, was really super memorable in some uh, P.T. Anderson films, especially Magnolia. Um, yeah. She's great in yep. that movie. She's in, <laughs> my favorite movie she's in is Cabin Boy, but that's a whole other story. I couldn't figure out who she was at first. I had to Google her. Yeah. And then realized. Um, and then there were some people at the party, I think, who turned out to do some stuff. Like Laura you know, Flynn Boyle. I was like, yes, that's right. Yeah. Well, she hasn't done anything in a while. Maybe she has. I don't know. I think uh, Men in Black 2 was probably your last big hurrah. Yeah. She married Jack she Nicholson, right? So I think maybe she. Or she was with him. Did she marry him? Yeah. And then she went crazy and like injected her face full yeah. of filler. And, you know, it was basically on TMZ only now sad that's unfortunate um so uh, it says here too that they uh initially were looking at dustin hoffman could have been good tom hanks could have been good mickey rourke maybe but mel gibson can you imagine mel gibson in this movie no he's he he just overacts everything i'm glad i'm glad they chose robin williams i thought he was perfect for this just like i agree you know his role in in, in goodwill hunting he does a good job of of playing that gentle mentor mm-hmm. who's going to change your life agreed and and even when he is somber because he is robin williams and maybe it's because we know who robin williams is or maybe it's his acting yeah. it's really hard to divorce this for me but like you know that underneath yeah. there is this spirit there yeah. So I don't know. I think I just this movie I just perfect. saw the other day um, I was reading some article with Matt Damon and he was talking about I think he was talking about improv in films and how, you know, how much he's done in the various films he's been involved in over the years. And the best line for him ever, which was improvised, was Robin Williams saying that son of a bitch stole my line when he gets the note from Matt Damon's character and he said they'd shot that over and over and over again. In the last take, Robin Williams did that. And he said he just grabbed Gus Van Sant and just they squeezed each other. They were like, <gasps> like, just chilled to the bone because it was so perfect. And that was one of the best lines of the film. But you got to wonder, like, <laughs> I, I don't think there was too much improv in Dead Poets Society. In fact, one of the reviews I read was he did a good job of reading his lines. <laughs> <laughs> maybe maybe that scene in the classroom that people had a problem with where yeah. he was kind of being goofy. Maybe that was him improving. Yeah. Well, I mean, and I think that gets back to Peter Weir, the director, who I wanted to talk a little bit about, too. I think he directed the hell out of this movie. Um, yeah. Again, like this movie could have gone sideways in so many ways and it didn't. Um I mean, it's a broad enough script that bad choices in directing, bad choices in acting could have made this feel campy or corny or after school specialish. And I never got there. And I think Peter Weir did a fantastic job. Like it was always very visually interesting. I love the little things like towards the beginning of the movie. um, You know, we're setting the stage of where this school is. Right. And the kids are bustling through the school and then we have these shots of birds mm. outside in the fall these flocks of birds intercut with the kids and just like the, the visual symbolism of this sort of chaos just little stupid artsy stuff like just really made it elevated the movie above what it could have been yeah yeah i agree it was beautiful so the, i don't know I, again i think beautifully it's, it's kind of like this thing that could have gone really bad and didn't 
So they they did a good job of showing us, um, I guess, the side of these elite prep schools that is romanticized. Mm-hmm. You know, and why so many people are so desperate for that life. And mm-hmm. that's what they were setting us up for. And then it was in obviously in stark contrast to the reality of the expectations and the tradition, the tradition, the tradition can be such a great thing. And it could also, you know, oh, I just realized I gave you another film involving suicide. Yes, you did. Wait, wait, you've oh, given me I'm more so than sorry. one film, right? I know, but I I promise Ordinary I to people. stop giving you suicide. And what about uh, the other one with the Boomer movie? Uh, yes, um, um, on the Big Chill. The Big Chill. That's. There was another one. There was there were several. This is some this is some Freudian stuff I'm happening tally on this it podcast. Up at some point, I'm so sorry. You no, know, it's fine. I, um, I, you haven't given me a too many bad movies so far, and I've liked all of those movies well enough, or I've been glad I've seen them at the very least. Yeah. yeah. Uh, um. Yeah. Uh. What was I gonna say? Um. I'm glad I saw this movie. I will say that. Like, it, it is a movie, and it's so iconic. So many parts of it. Carpe Diem. And okay, I remember what I was gonna say too. Like, so Carpe Diem, obviously, that was famous before this movie. But for a whole new generation yes. of people, this is like the defining usage of that phrase, and why I think you see it more than you probably did before, right? And I think it's interesting too how many different other movies this inspired including goodwill hunting in these movies where it's about the power of a teacher touching kids lives and and also there's a whole bunch of movies about boarding schools that came out after this too you know toy soldiers yeah school ties ties. all those movies yep um and and i don't think any of them live up to what the standard that this set the only one that i would say is better than this is rushmore but i don't i don't know if that would i don't know how much this movie actually influenced that movie yeah I just thought of another suicide movie I gave you, The Razor's Edge. Oh yeah. Jesus, sorry, Nick. <laughs> well, I mean, there are like know. four or five of them. Hey, it's part of life. It's part of life, People and it's it's them. a prime source of drama, obviously yeah, as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, um. So what what are we watching next week? Well, next week we're gonna go a completely different direction. We're gonna go comedy. Um, we're gonna go something slightly newer. Um, is a movie that I have watched probably five or six times at this point. Um, it, it's a it's a comfort movie for me now. Um, it's called The Trip. It stars Steve Coogan and Rob Brydon as a pair of English buddies. It's a semi-improvised movie where they go on a road trip to review restaurants. And they get into some little scrapes here and there. They mostly just spend the entire time making themselves and us laugh. And I think you're going to really enjoy it. It's um, a, a film that had been cut down from an eight-episode or six-episode series for bbc or itv or one of those british channels and so if you like the movie i would actually also encourage you to go back and watch the show you can download it illegally um and there's also four of these trip movies they keep doing it because it's so much fun and as the movies progress we'll talk more about it next week but i think you're really gonna like it at the very least you're gonna just laugh for 90 minutes and then forget about it and i think that's okay too i think it sounds right up my alley actually i'm excited to see this yeah i'm glad and i'm i'm glad we're Sticking with this here, uh, I know like a month ago we said we're going to do this every week still. We're going to get back to it. And like our jobs have been insane and we don't do this. We do this for fun and not for money. And so like sometimes it's hard, but we're we're working on it. 
Yeah, it's been one year, one year and a couple of weeks. Happy anniversary. Yeah. I can't believe how many. We, it, we've we done so many films now that we have to come up with a new list. Right. And that's great. Yeah. It's going to be awesome. If anyone has suggestions, of course, drop them on our Facebook page. If we ever do anything with that ever again. Update the Facebook page. Yeah. I know. It's anyway. hard. We, we don't um, have a social media no, person. Yeah, exactly. We're doing this as a side gig. We're not getting paid. We're not making any money on this. This is just for fun. So I'm glad we made it to a year. And we're working on getting some more guests because I think we all like having the guests on. And we've got some really good ideas we're working on there. So hopefully we'll have have some more soon. And again, part of the problem with the guests for us, for me anyway, is the scheduling thing. Finding time we can all be there and not knowing what my work is going to look like or your work is going to look like. So yeah. And I have a bizarre schedule where I go to bed like a baby at eight at night. So it's kind of hard. We have to find a time in the afternoon when we're not at work. Well, uh, I look forward to talking to you next week about, well, or let's be real in like 12 weeks, whatever it is, <laughs> about the trip. <laughs> um, and again, if you guys uh, have ideas, well, we're open to them, you know, so yep. send them our yep. way. Carpe diem. Love actually sucks. Film Swap is produced and hosted by Angelica Thornton and Nick Vole. You can watch or listen on YouTube, Spotify, Anchor, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. Follow Angelica on Twitter at AngelicaKATU and follow Nick at Nick Vol. Share your thoughts on the films we discussed there and we might just read them on the show. Music by John Michael Farley and Nick Vole.